John Kasich's Second Thought Transparency. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Laura Bischoff, Statehouse reporter for the Dayton Daily News. Reginald Fields, Columbus Bureau Chief for the Plain Dealer. Bob Clegg, Republican strategist. And Greg Haas, Democratic strategist. John Kasich takes the oath of office next week as Ohio's next governor. But the simple task of raising his right hand generated a bit of controversy this week. The state constitution says the new governor must be sworn in at midnight because because it is tough to get a big crowd on Capitol Square at that hour. The new governor usually takes the oath of office in front of just a few people, as Ted Strickland did back in 2007, as you see here. Then the governor does it again at a reasonable hour for the masses. John Kasich first bucked tradition and excluded the media from the midnight oath. That led to questions about transparency and openness until the governor told reporters they could attend. Reggie Fields, why is attending this the first midnight oath of office important? Um, you know, it's 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 a, it's the official swearing in. I mean, he's officially in office. Really, it's just it's a it's a free story for them to make them look re- really good. So it really didn't make sense for them to, to sort of you know create this this uh, cloak of secrecy on an issue where everyone's going to want to cover it, put it on the front page, you know, make the new governor look look good. And I think uh, you know earlier in the week they were even challenging you know the media to to fight them on it if they wanted to, and then. Everyone started writing stories about it, and then they said, you know what? And, you know, uh, Mr. Kasich himself came out yesterday and said, you know what? I should have been more involved. I screwed this one up. So why, why didn't he want to do it at the State House? Why he wanted to do it at his private house near I, Westerville yeah, in front I think, of a small crowd? I think what they're d- trying to do with this inaugural is, given the economic situation that Ohio is in right now, they're doing a lot of lower-key type things. I think, I think this, the intention of this event was to be very low-key, you know, it was going to be at his home with his family and maybe a few staffers, and that was it. And I don't think there was any thought given uh, to the media interest that would be in it. But I think they're just trying to make sure that this isn't a big showy thing, because right now here in Ohio with, you know, almost 10% unemployment, they didn't want to do anything all that big and grand. But I, I, I don't know if he's worried about a big show. I mean, John Casey doesn't mind, you know, kind of, you know, being sort of a big show with the, some of these introductions and everything else that, he, that he's doing. Um, you know... I, I think uh, just having people at his home, maybe he did not want that, which is, you know, which is fine and understandable. Uh, But just, you know, closing everyone out, you know, um, you know, his comments were that he didn't want the media. And it wasn't just the swearing in and some of the other events also where they want to kind of close down the media or keep the media contained and escort them out. And his comments were, well, we don't want you guys reporting on some of the things that these private individuals might be doing at these parties. And it's really that's not that's not our purpose for being there anyway. Well, the news in this really wasn't that he wanted to be privately sworn in. In fact, Dick Celeste was privately sworn in in 1982, or in 1983 after the 82 election because he wanted to move quickly on the PUCO stuff, but it wasn't announced, and, it, and there was no retreat from the press. It was just done, and the, and the, and the process moved forward. And then the, hacked off a lot of the reporters. Yeah, oh, and he got, he got s- probably right. more harshly treated at this point than, than the governor has. But, but the interesting thing about this is how easy this is. I mean, w- why in your first impulse do you not re- immediately recognize that if the press is asking about this and it obviously is a, an historic event, we're going to make some kind of accommodation. It's, it's, it's the easy part. You know, where you see the, this, the governor having trouble in this early stage, 
Uh, the Democrats aren't doing anything. It's not, a, it's not being provoked by the media at all. The, this is like, you know, uh, uh, um, a newlywed, you know, on the first night, heading to the bar on the first night after the wedding, you know, and, 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 and missing out on the fun stuff. This should be easy. You know, he did, and, he and, did say and, that he felt like is, he did say it felt he felt like he had used his mulligan on mm -hmm. something that really wasn't worthwhile. That it was a it was a fight not worth fighting, and he. And I think he's got a few mulligans already. So. But yeah, that, that's the that's the question. He's had a couple of other instances where this transparency issue has come up after the uh, uh, Tom Charles was named the head of public safety. He he kind of complained that conflict of interest laws and transparency with the media is, is, was hurting his search for candidates. Bob, is it? Is this a sign of his style of, of leadership that he wants well, I think things to be closed? I think he's gotten used to what th things are like in the private sector. And obviously, you know, running a business and doing things in the private sector is totally different than being a governor of a state. So I think he's going through a transition on that. And I think right now the concentration is because of the, the I mean, this is going to be the worst kind of transition that he governor has ever had because he's facing obviously an eight billion dollar deficit i think he's trying to get the absolute best people he can get and he does not want to have any kind of obstacles in the way because i they're concentrating and that's why a lot of these things are happening because they're concentrating on the big problem that they're facing from day one from when he gets sworn in and i think that's probably taking a lot of the concentration away from other things but it's like not this like, it's not like he's never served in the public sector no but, but things have changed a lot from when he last served over 10 years ago the um what the media expects to be able to be open to is different than it was back then and and i think they just gotta you know come up to speed with what the expectation level is. i also think that serving in congress he's one of 435 representatives he is now the governor of, of a very large state, and he's in a fishbowl, and I think he's going to have some uh, time where he's going to need to, to adapt to that. That's, I think that's a very good point. Now, that, that is what tends to happen when anybody moves from a legislative body to an administrative body, whether they're moving from city council to mayor or they're moving from state rep to, to uh, a statewide office or, or any, kind of, any transition from legislative to administrative is always seems to be a jolt for whoever's making it. Okay, let's get to our next topic for the first time in a couple of years after a two-year hiatus. Republicans are back in control of the Ohio House. The new House Speaker, Bill Batchelder, this week promised to consider tax cuts designed to help the unemployed and encourage college students to stay in Ohio. He and other Republicans said the cuts are possible even as the state faces that huge budget deficit. Lord Bischoff, how do lawmakers say they can do both? Offer targeted tax credits, cuts for some groups, but yet they have this huge hole to fill. I think they say it because it sounds good at the moment. I don't know if when push comes to shove and they're and they're working out the budget if they'll actually be able to do it or maybe they'll you know, maybe they'll have a plan where they phase it in over time. Um, but I do think that they they'll do some of their higher profile things like the estate tax. Um, they you know, they want to eliminate the the estate tax. Uh, that that's going to uh, benefit a small slice of people who actually die and have an estate worth more than $335,000, which is a very small percentage of Ohioans. Um, and it's going to end up uh, hurting, I think, townships and villages and cities that rely on that, on that income. Because 80% of the estate tax, the state estate tax, goes at the local level. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what Batchelder comes through with because um, not only is he going to do tax cuts and, and the budget, he's also talking about pension reform and some other you know, really big meaty issues. He said he's got, the other day he said he had 107 bills already drafted and ready to go in like 27 different topic areas. 
What's going to be? It's obviously different. Different speaker, different committee chairs, and things like that from the from the past couple of years. It's also a Republican governor. Who's going to Who's going to be driving the legislative agenda? Is it going to be Bill Batchelder? Or is it going to be John Kasich? I think it's an easy call, I and mean, I think Bill Batchelder will will be. And I think it's it, it makes perfect sense that he will be. I mean, it, the the important thing about this transition that we're seeing in the legislature is for the first time now in three speakers. Uh, we're seeing somebody with a legislative uh, institutional knowledge. Um, you know, the last uh, since uh, Speaker Davidson left, the last three speakers we've had have been first-term state reps, zero percent, you know, or zero uh, legislative knowledge. Now we've got a guy who's got as much legislative institutional knowledge as anybody we've seen in a long time. He's going to be able to do a whole lot that, that other speakers have not been able to do in recent years. And I, I th a lot of what he's going to do as well is going to be able to help John Kasich get his agenda across because he, uh, Mr. Batchelder also said this week that among those bills uh, that Laura uh, mentioned was going to be one for the Jobs Ohio plan and that's getting rid of the Ohio Department of Development with this new um, you know, private board of job creation. Um, there was an announcement in regards to that today. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to introduce a bill that's going to help him get that pass. Uh, John Kasich is also going to take on some, some, you know, more, even more meteor, you know, topics such as the collective bargaining law. I know that the, uh, I expect the House Republicans will try and introduce something that may revise that particular law. All of that is is sort of geared to kind of help John Kasich get across some of his campaign promises. Bob, where might Bill Batchelder and John Kasich differ in the coming? Months. Well, is it with I, the budget, I agree. I agree with Greg that I think uh, Speaker Batchelder is going to be driving that that agenda in the House, and I and I think what he's going to try to do, and, and you mentioned with the tax cut, he is going to think outside of the box because of the the large nature of these problems that are facing Ohio. I think they're going to have a lot of different ideas that are going to be out there. Now, I'm not saying that those ideas would be necessarily in opposition to what the governor is doing, but it's going to be something different from what the governor may be thinking, and they're going to have to work, as any governor and speaker would have to do, they're going to have to work that out. I should say that the tax credits are, are two-pronged. They are to encourage college students to stay here for five years after they graduate. They wouldn't have to pay income taxes. And the other one is to encourage businesses to hire unemployed workers. Yeah. And those two uh, tax um, proposals, along with what Laura talked about with the estate tax, the whole purpose of those proposals is to try to get more Ohioans to stay in Ohio, whether it's younger people or even the older people. We've got to do something here to try to stop this outflow of people. Now, the style of the two le Republican leaders, uh, John Kasich and Bill Batchelder. Yeah. I think match? that's where the conflict will occur, I think, ultimately between the two. It will be less about substance and more about style and more about approach. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, the governor is going to be able to uh, tell Bill Batchelder to get on the bus, uh, you know, or, or, uh, or get run over. Or get run over. <laughs> and I think that we can really anticipate that, that there will, will be some, I mean, th these are two very different kind of people. and, and uh, their experiences are a lot different. So I think we can anticipate some of that kind of conflict. Maybe not so much substance, but, but in terms of style, I think it's pretty clear there will be. And there's certainly going to be conflict when it comes time to cut the budget because mm -hmm. things are going to get cut in each of these districts around the state, whether it's a Republican that's representing those people or a Democrat, that's going to cause some conflict. Matter. That'll be bipartisan conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to be scrapping over crumbs. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's get to our third topic. One of the things Governor-elect Kasich says he is seriously considering, considering as a way to cut the budget is to privatize prisons. So 
Who better to put in charge of the state's prison system than a man who has worked for a consultant for the nation's largest private prison company? Now, to be fair, Gary Moore spent most of his career in the public prison sector working as a warden and as an assistant director of Ohio Corrections. Greg Haas, the resume looks great. Public sector uh, experience, private sector experience, but the conflict of interest question came up. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, and I agree with you. He, he does clearly have, has an outstanding resume, and he, he clearly knows the industry. The question is, um, you know, is he going to be fair in terms of the evaluation between the, 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 the difficult decisions that lie ahead in terms of privatization? Clearly, the governor is, is headed down this track, uh, and this is a clear sign that, that he's going to be very aggressive about it. Um, and, you know, the, the we, need, we do need, though, no matter what your position is on in, in any policy issue, that, that you need people who are around who, who are going to be fair judges and evaluate the process uh, to help you make the right decision. But, but it's very clear that this thing's going to be steamrolled and we're headed down a very fast track and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it works out. But is there, he works for Corrections Corporation of America, if I have the CCA. Yeah. Is there, I mean, they're likely going to be a bidder for any state prison that is possibly going to become private. Is there any way Mr. Moore, with his relationship to the company, can be an objective source here? Does he have to abdicate all decision-making responsibility to somebody else? I would say he has to steer clear of it entirely. Um, just, but I don't know, you know exactly what is required under the Ohio ethics law. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think what you touched on earlier, I mean, the, the key here is to get an individual who's had experience in both worlds, because obviously it's a big difference. And if you are going to make this transition, which I think you should do, then I think it, the best, best person you could get is somebody who's had both private and public uh, experience with, with corrections. And anybody you get that's had any private sector experience would have that conflict. Um, I wouldn't feel as comfortable if he got somebody who only was a prison director in the public sector and had never done anything in the private because I wouldn't be all that confident that that individual would even know how it would even work in, in he, the private he sector. He will be in the position where he knows the best and the worst of both yeah. systems. Well, and like, but like anything and any bidder, there are differences in diff what different companies bring to any different situation. They, they all set themselves apart from each other with, with various structures. The, now we've got a director who's going to be setting that policy, who's uh, going to be make, making the decisions about what the standards are in the bids and, and evaluating those bids. And he may take himself out of evaluating the bids, but is he going to be part of designing the bids as that moves ahead? And how? And, and it's, to me, there's no way that this can pass the appearance of impropriety test uh, if, if his former company ends up with any of the uh, state prisons. Are private prisons a good idea? Does it save the state as much money as officials hope? Is there a safety issue? Are they a good idea? Well, you know, what's interesting is Ohio's had two privately run prisons, right? Currently, the contract is with a Management Training Corporation, I believe, which mm -hmm. is based in Utah. And they've had them for about 10 years. Um, I think that they, the way they're structured is they, they're not treated like any other prison in the system in that I think, I don't know if they're still doing it, but, you know, when they first came in, they were allowed to kind of cherry pick the best inmates. They wouldn't take inmates with serious health problems or who smoked or um, had big disciplinary issues. So, um, you know, the, the, the union members will say that they're still getting the, the choir boys instead of the general population. And also, 
they don't have um, they're not over as over capacity as some of the as some of similarly built and structured prisons within the system. I, I think this might be a, a two prong approach also that that uh, Governor Kasich is going to try. I mean, if he goes the private route, if that's going to save some money in some sort of way on our prisons, but he's also talked about uh, the number of inmates who are in there for such a short period of time, like less than a year. I believe uh, maybe more than fifty, maybe sixty percent of the inmates are, are who are in the state prison system are there for less. Than a year, and that is that's very costly um, for the state. So, you know, uh, I don't know. Do you do you go with some legislation that uh, maybe doesn't make this, uh, so many of these prison sentences mandatory up front? It could be something the, that you, you know. The address. thing is, though, that the the sentencing reform bill has been tied up in the Senate. Right. It, well, it got tied up the whole session. Nobody wanted. It. They didn't want to pull the trigger on it. Yeah, it's right. You know, Bob obviously has, has said that he's he's in favor. Surprisingly enough, you know, um, <laughs> I, I disagree. <laughs> and I, yeah, and, and I disagree with that. Uh, I think that in the end, you know, when we set about privatizing a lot of these things that uh, that are designed to take a bottom rung care of of you know uh, individuals, when we've got things that are designed to um, uh, support or 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 cover a certain faction uh, in our society. The idea of privatizing a lot of that is is a very scary concept, but it's easy politically. I mean, to say that that today, now when we've got a small percentage of private prisons and they're allowed to to cherry pick, we've got one kind of environment. But that's that cherry picking is designed to make those institutions look as good as possible comparatively to the state-run institutions. What's going to happen ultimately when we have eighty or ninety percent? private prisons. Are they going to continue to be, are they going to be responsive? What's going to happen to the, to the level of care? What's going to happen to the protection of the people who live next to them? Are they going to maintain the same standards? Um, when you've got a private entity like this, you do not necessarily have to care too much about what either neighbors n neighbors think ab about the prison or, or the inmates themselves. Greg, Greg, I just believe that there are other entities other than government that can do things as well, if not better than government. I mean, that's where I'm coming from. Well, should we privatize the highway patrol? Maybe. Maybe we should. Maybe we should privatize the turnpike. Maybe we should privatize workers' comp. I mean, there are a lot of different things that we can look at privatizing. Government isn't the only answer here, mm -hmm. and that's why I think sometimes we go into these situations thinking government is the only entity that can deal with any of these things. You know, I, I think we left that a long, long time ago. I mean, I, I think we've been on a retreat from government's role for a long, long time. I don't, and I, and I don't disagree with you that there are places where privatization makes sense. But I, th but I do think that, that there are areas in which I just don't trust uh, the idea of, of the profit motive. Uh, there are areas where the profit motive does not necessarily work in the best interest of the public at large. And I think when you're talking about locking people up, putting them behind bars, protecting the people who live nest next to it, when you throw that profit motive in there, it becomes a real wild card that I think is very suspect. One thing for certain is that uh, Governor Kasich is, is definitely going all the way down this road of, of privatization. We heard him today add yet another to it. He said uh, he's looking at the Liquor Commission, or, or is it the Liquor Liquor's, Authority? Liquor Sales. Yeah, liquor sales. He's looking at privatizing um, that as an entity as well because someone told him that he would be able to save quite a bit of money if he were to go that route. These are the state-run Liquor, liquor stores, stores right. not the carryout. Uh, right. The but they're, are already, they're already privatized, though. That's the thing that I that I wondered cool. about that. I mean, I mean, you you go to a uh, right. um, um, Kroger or Giant Eagle today, right? I mean, right. I, I, don't yeah, under, yeah, the, I didn't understand that point at all right. because we left yeah. the state-run stores. 
in the, in the Voinovich administration. So I was very confused by that comment. Let's move east. In Washington, there is an Ohioan third in line to the presidency. John Boehner of suburban Cincinnati took over as Speaker of the U.S. House this week. After completing their U.S. Constitution on tape recording session, Republicans are set to push a complete repeal of the health care overhaul law. It's bound to be a tough vote for Republican Congressman, new Republican Congressman Steve Stivers, who has said he likes portions of the law. Bob Clegg, Stivers likes to say he's a moderate Republican. Yeah. He's in a tough spot now because he likes some portions of this law, but now he's being asked to repeal all of it by his party. Yeah, but it is, it, it can be tough, but it really won't be tough because I think what, what he'll end up doing is doing the repeal and replace. I mean, he'll repeal Obamacare, but then it'll be replaced. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not talking just repealing everything and saying, our work is done, we, let's move on to creating jobs. Um, they're going to repeal it and they're going to replace. And many of the things that, if not all the things that he likes about that current law will be part of that replacement. What we have to do is we got to take care of the, the things like forcing people to get health insurance, the, that individual mandate that may even be hopefully you know, thrown out by the courts. We got to get those kind of bad, really bad things out, out, of, out, of, out of the law and get it replaced with common sense things. And I think in the end, he'll, it won't be that difficult for him because it's not going to be a standalone repeal with nothing replacing it. You know, one of, the, one of the points that you make in terms of the um, mandatory participation, the very first person I ever heard talk about mandatory participation and the first governor I know to oversee uh, mandatory participation in health care was Mitt Romney. He regrets uh, it now, uh, uh, Yeah, he regrets <laughs> it now and that he's running for the Republican nomination. He may start to care about it again uh, if he ever gets the Republican nomination. But, um, you know, I mean, we clearly have a, an opportunity here on our side to, to begin to tell, re, retell the story. This is a great opportunity for the president. Uh, the longer that this fight drags out, because, first of all, in terms of public opinion, uh, the public is clearly split on this at this point. Within those that, that, that are supporting repeal, there's a significant chunk who actually want a more aggressive health care uh, proposal. Um, so, you know, y y this, is a, this is a tough issue. It, it, it's going to be tough for the Republicans because now, whenever you advocate for something, you take every piece of it on and you have to, um, and, and it's very easy to oppose uh, 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 a proposal. Now, we've got a situation where as they tear it down, they have to face the people who, are, who, who don't have care coming into the, and, and needing it. And, and it's a whole new, it, the thing is actually reversed and it's a great opportunity for the president. Why doesn't the bill, Bob, why, why wouldn't the bill have, instead of, because this is just a repeal, it's not mm -hmm. a repeal and replace bill, yeah. it's a repeal bill. Repeal. Why not wait a few months, have a repeal and replace all one bill? Because we gotta stop it now. Because they're spending a lot of money, taxpayer dollars, to try to implement this. That's gotta stop. It's sort of like uh, Governor Strickland spending taxpayer dollars on a train study. That wasn't going to ever happen. Okay, so why would we let this continue, continue taxpayer dollars being spent on things that the people of the United States have said they don't want? It's, but the CBO uh, Democrats don't want to admit that this was a big issue in 2010. They've had two years to sell it. They haven't been able to sell it, and it's still actually, not wanted. Actually, that's that's not the case. The, the, all the recent surveys show that the public is split right down the middle in terms of whether to repeal this or not. And and, and, and well, it's it, it's every poll that's been done, Bob. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it, that's, that's not a moot the, point. The polling is there's three camps: oppose it, yeah. favor it, 
or oppose it because it didn't and go also, far enough. And also, right. how strongly do you favor or oppose? And that's where the Democrats got their big problem, because well, only maybe 20% strongly favor it, and about 45% strongly oppose it. And it's that intensity that's causing the Democrats a problem. And you saw that intensity problem in just this past election, which is why they got shellacked, according well, to the first president. Of all, first of all, there's no question that the Democrats did a poor job of, of running the campaign no, they got and a talking poor product. about it. But, but that's the, their problem. No, the, no, the truth is that, that, that this is going to um, be a big problem. This is a ceremonial vote. The Senate's going to reject it. It's not right. about it's not about and re we Republicans want you Democrats to keep we've trying waiting, to defend it. We've been waiting it. for 20 years for the Republicans to step forward with a replacement, and we haven't heard it. All right. Well, all right, we have to leave it there. Okay. <laughs> this bipartisanship is, is still alive, isn't it? Anyway, it's time now for our final off-the-record parting shots. Greg Haas, we'll let you go first. Well, I, I, I'm going to predict that before too much longer, we're going to see caricatures of Yosemite Sam is Governor Kasich uh, if he continues to shoot for the hip from the hip as much as he has been. So. All right. And, wow. I, and I think uh, what we've talked about today about privatization will be going out into many, many different areas in the state of Ohio because we do have to do some major things to, to get this problem of $8 billion deficit under control. Reggie. Um, you can add uh, Governor Kasich to the long list of uh, state leaders and local leaders who do not like the casino deal. And meanwhile, while the casino owners in Columbus and Cleveland are arguing over infrastructure, trying to get you know better local deals to build those, they have to also start to look over their shoulder or shoulder at this governor who is absolutely looking at ways to try to change that deal to get Ohio a, a better percentage return. And Laura. Uh, yeah, I don't have a prediction, but I was going to um, talk about a book that uh, Jim and Nancy Petro, Jim Petro, former attorney general, just wrote called False Justice, and it's about uh, wrongful convictions. Um, it's a book that probably prosecutors will hate, defense attorneys will love. Ohioans might find it interesting. It talks a lot about uh, cases that um, Ohio journalists have written about extensively. Okay. My final thought, of course, we've all heard and heard the voice of Ted Williams and seen the story of the homeless man with the great radio voice who was spotted by a videographer from the Columbus Dispatch, Durrell Chenoweth, and uh, he made his way to New York. Became, he became really the face of homelessness in Columbus, which is terrific. We're glad for him. But remember, for every, there's a lot more of Ted Williams, a lot more Ted Williams out there on your street corners, and we'll look at those guys and gals a little differently from the, in the weeks ahead, hopefully. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. Please check us out online. We are on Facebook and we are on Twitter. My New Year's resolution is to Twitter more. I went from shant Twitter to seldom Twitter to occasionally Twitter. Now I'm going to try to do it regularly. Anyway, you can get to all that at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.